lovely, thank you. Great songs that help us in our worship and so do the musicians. Lovely to have a nice little orchestra here tonight and also for those working upstairs, appreciate all you're doing as well. And let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you've got one with you tonight, to Matthew chapter 9 from where we read earlier. I guess there are certain scriptures that always challenge me as a preacher, as a pastor. And in two chapters earlier, in Matthew chapter 7, um, you'll remember, of course, Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 is what we would, many people would address as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He's coming towards the end of that Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, and at the end of chapter 7, in, well, towards the end of verse 20, he makes a statement and says, talking about Christians, followers of Jesus, disciples. He says, by their fruits, you will know them. He notice, he says, by their fruits, not by the words, but by their fruits. And he follows it up by saying, and this is the challenge always to me as a preacher. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, have we not prophesied or preached in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It always challenges me, it's possible, it's possible to be a preacher. It's possible to be a pastor and not be accepted into heaven. Big challenge, isn't it? And the reason we notice is this, it's by their fruits, not by their words. And in one sense, humanly, anybody can stand. Well, perhaps some of you would disagree with this statement. You say, well, I wouldn't get up in the pulpit if you paid me a million pounds. But for some of us, we could stand up here and we could uh, give a a reasonable message but Jesus says it's not about necessarily your words praise God he uses preachers and by his spirit and his word he speaks to our hearts and that's why we're doing this tonight but there's the challenge isn't it if we just live a life a worldly life a life a godless life and just stand up in the pulpit and preach there's the challenge God says don't just expect to be accepted into my heaven. And I say, that's always been a, a challenge to me. And then flick over to Matthew chapter 9 where we read from, like, why do I introduce in, in such a way? Well, you'll hopefully see in just a moment, because in Matthew chapter 9, of course, we have Matthew's account of this paralytic man. Mark's Gospel chapter 2 tells us a little more detail, and you probably, most of us will know the passage where, I, I love these four friends. Because when they heard that Jesus was coming to Capernaum, do you remember the four friends, instead of just saying, right, we're going to see Jesus, they found the place where he was, but instead of just going on their own, they thought, we've got a friend who's in great need. This paralyzed man. I don't know, I get all kinds of, and I conjure up all kinds of stories when I used to do assemblies anyway, you know, how the, these four friends used to pop in every day and see if he wanted any groceries and any newspapers, you know. They're not quite scriptural thoughts, you understand, but like to build the picture up for the children in school. But you sort of imagine these people, but the great thing about these friends was they had enough of a burden for this man's need that they went and got him. 
and they got him on his bed and they carried him through the street and when they got to the house where Jesus was, you'll know, many of you ever so well, not preaching on this tonight, or it will get on really, but uh, as a result, they couldn't get in the door. Eventually, you remember, they took the tiles off the roof and let this man down where Jesus was. Uh, I don't know who the house owner was, a bit uh, worrying to have somebody pulling your tiles off your roof and making a great big hole and everybody looks up who's listening to Jesus and you imagine a bit of dust falling down as well but eventually Jesus speaks to him and I always love this passage and, and I know James has preached on it, I've preached on it before but it's always an interesting point to me that the first thing that Jesus addresses is this spiritual man's the needs of this man spiritually and not physically he had a physical need, it was obvious, everybody could see that. They wanted their friend to walk, but the first thing Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven you. That's when the trouble started, of course. They said, who is this man that can forgive sins? Didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. But of course, Jesus said, because of their faith. This man is made whole in the old language. He not only receives healing for his legs, but he meets Jesus and he knows forgiveness of his sins. And I always believe that's the right order. You know, the most important thing of all, wonderful if we're healed, and there's probably people here tonight who would say, yes, we've been healed by God from, from an illness. Praise God for that. But the bad news is, of course, as we thought this morning with James, that one day we are going to die anyway, even if we're healed again. But the greatest thing of all is to know a spiritual change and to know forgiveness of our sins because that's an eternal issue. That's the greatest issue of all. And so... We come through that and Jesus then leaves people who are marvelling, not sure many of them who Jesus is, who's just performed this miracle. Some people are annoyed by that and criticised him, but then you get to verse 9 and Jesus meets this tax collector. He's a, he's a traitor as far as the Jews are concerned because he's working for the, uh, the occupying Romans and they hated tax collectors. They despised them as much as they could. And there he is sitting at the receipt of customs and Jesus comes along and it says on verse 10 that he called in verse 9 and he said to him, follow me. And this traitor, he stands up. The call of Christ is so compelling that he leaves it all. I guess he left money around on the table. He left the job and he followed Jesus. It was so compelling. And once more, again, we have a man who was concerned about his friends. Just as those four friends were concerned about their paralyzed friend, so we've now got Matthew, who in the next verse, in verse 10, tells us he put on a feast at his house and he invited his friends. Well, who were his friends? Well, they were the rest of the despised tax collectors. They weren't a very well-liked group, but he had them all round to the house despised by society, but there they were, sitting around this big table, and it, Jesus is with them. And you just imagine, it's the evangelist's dream, really, for Jesus to be there, and all of those people just look at them, despised, hated, maybe hadn't had an encounter, we're pretty certain, apart from Matthew, these people hadn't had an encounter with Jesus. And, uh, and this meal is taking place and then verse 11 the pharisees saw it they came to jesus no they didn't do that they went to his disciples and they said to his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners the two despised groups the sinners were the, the prostitutes all kinds of people oh, they were shunned they were looked down on 
They're sinful people. Their sin was open and everybody knew it and they were shunned by society and, and linked to them were these tax collectors. And why does your leader, your master, your teacher sit with these people? Why does he identify with these people? You see, uh, in one sense, it's not a strange question coming from the Pharisees. There's a saying, which I believe there's a great deal of truth in, that says you can tell a person by the friends that they keep. Tell a person by the friends that they keep. And you see, if you were a Pharisee, looking at that situation, they think, what is this supposed Jesus doing with this bunch of people? Surely he shouldn't be involved with this, this awful group of people. Hang on just for a moment, and I know perhaps I'm guilty as one of them of in the pulpit sometimes giving the Pharisees an awful lot of stick. And of course I'm, I don't agree with what the Pharisees did, but actually when you think about what they're trying to do, well, they were serious about following God, you've got to give them that. Uh, they, they had a desire to be holy, you've got to give them that. And they read the Old Testament scriptures. Well, you've got to give them that. I know they added to them and everything else. And you know, actually, when you think of those three things, they had a desire to be holy, they read the Old Testament scriptures, they were serious about following God. Well, surely we would want, if we're Christians tonight, those things to be said of us, wouldn't we? We'd like to know the scriptures. Well, yes, we want a desire to be holy, yes. And we're serious about following God. Well, yes, I hope the answer to those three is yes. Of course, the, the problem then comes that it all then went badly wrong for these Pharisees because whilst getting some things right, as I say, they added very much to the laws, were far above what Scripture said. They had no recognition of Jesus as God and they were full of pride. And as a result of pride, they became very legalistic and judgmental and they drove a wedge between themselves and the people that they were then complaining about, these despised people. We don't want to touch them with a barge pole, you know. Because they were righteous, according to them. But according to Scripture, in Romans 3, there is nobody righteous. No Pharisees, no people in Waldringfield, or anywhere else you care to name. You can be the Queen, you can be the Pope, you can be anybody else you like. There is no one righteous on earth, no, not one. You see, this question about Jesus fire his disciples. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Look at the company he's keeping. That was really in the, their minds, wasn't it? Well, look in verse 12 at Jesus' response. Because when Jesus heard that, he said to them, and it's sort of a threefold thing I want to share just for a few moments tonight in this verse. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's the second part. And then the third part, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's three phrases there, really, all words of Jesus. Actually, it's ever so easy to miss out the middle bit. I'll come to that in a moment. But the first thing, well, the first part makes sense to all of us, doesn't it? I mean, first of all, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but only those who are sick. Well, that's true, isn't it? You know, uh, I'll go along with that. I think most of you will. You know, I've told you before, some of you have heard this before, but um, I meet several doctors these days when I go to the surgery at Woodbridge. It just depends who's around, really, um, and who I choose. And uh, I don't know about you, I, I love them dearly. They're lovely people, but I get the impression these days that they seem to ask you what's wrong with you. You know, I, I don't know, it doesn't give me a great deal of confidence. I like them to tell me. Used to be, you've heard me say this before, but I used to see a man called, or a doctor called Dr. Bowles. And he was the old school, you know. And uh, you knew exactly where you were with him. You always had to knock on the door. Come in. Uh, Dr. Bowles. Mr. Wincoll. Yes. We need to sort out your blood pressure. He had one of those hand pump ones, you know. He had those little cards where you scribbled that you couldn't read any of the writing on, which was probably just as well. I went in there one day, and uh, it was for my ear to be syringe. And he said, Mr. Wincoll, get on the scales. I said, get on the scales? I've come for my ear to be syringed. Mr. Wincoll, get on the scales. And I said, can I take my shoes off? He said, only pregnant women take their shoes off. So that was the end of that. I thought I'd get away with a few pounds if I took my shoes off, but he wasn't having any of that. And I stood on the scales and he said, Mr. Wincoll, you are four pounds short of obese. I wasn't very complimentary, you know. Uh, you, uh, sadly, he's no longer with us, and some of you may remember him. He retired, and then a couple of years later, he passed away. But actually, I have a great deal of respect for him, but I'll tell you one thing I wouldn't do. I'd never go and see Dr. Bowles if I was well. You wouldn't mess with him, you know. Nobody messed with Dr. Bowles. You had to be ill to go in there. I wouldn't mess with him. You wouldn't worry a doctor if you were well, would you? Well, of course you wouldn't. I'd be very surprised if you do. And that makes absolute sense here. But what is Jesus saying? Why is he talking about people who are sick and people who are well and how well people don't need a physician? In the response to the question, of course, Jesus is sitting with tax collectors, these down and outs, these despised people, these sinners... And he's saying this, the people who I am, am identifying with are the people who I've come to meet the need of. You see, Jesus tonight, if I can put it in a different terminology, is a spiritual doctor. He's our spiritual doctor. Actually, spiritually, he's our only hope. The Bible talks about him as the great physician. And he wants to meet people in their need. The problem with the Pharisees were, they needed him just as much, but they didn't see it. They didn't recognize it. They thought they were righteous when they weren't. I thought about that verse as I was studying where um, we read, it's Timothy, isn't it, where, where Paul writes and talks about the Lord Jesus as he is one mediator. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And I thought about that for a moment. I've often quoted that verse from the pulpit. I've never said this before, but I thought, well, hang on. Why do we need a mediator? And when do you need a mediator? Who needs a mediator? Well, only people who mediate are people who have got two warring factions, isn't that right? They're trying to draw two sides together who are apart for one reason or another. It may be a trade union uh, group against a, uh, you know, the, the factory owner, or it may be in a war situation. 
You see, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. The reason is because Paul tells us in Romans, we're enemies. We're not singing from the same song sheet when we're born. We're exactly like these people we're thinking about tonight. We're born with this sinful, we're not, we don't choose to come into this world, do we? But we're born with this sinful nature and we've got a bias against God and, and we're enemies of God, but, but by the work of the Spirit of God, can that ever change? But Jesus is the mediator because he's the only one capable of, of drawing sinful people like you and me and like the tax collectors and sinners and like the Pharisees, if only they saw it, coming to know a relationship with the God of heaven. He's the only one. Remember Luke 19, verse 10? Jesus' words, talking about himself, for the Son of Man, Jesus, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We're lost. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to God the Father but by me. There's no other way. Whatever Anne Diamond said on breakfast television some years ago, telling us that all religions lead to God. Sorry, and read your Bible. There's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. So the first thing Jesus says as he's being criticised for sitting with these tax collectors is, those who are well have no need of physician, but only those who are sick. And then the middle bit, which so often we can miss out so easy, it actually reads quite nicely if you just read the first part and the third part. Let me do it. But those who are well, Jesus said, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, that sounds all straightforward, doesn't it? But we've missed out the middle bit. And actually that's so important because Jesus in the second part says, but go and learn what this means. And then he says, and if you've got a Bible like mine, it's not only in red writing, but it's in italics, which means he's quoting from the Old Testament of the Bible. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now that's ever so important. And actually, for your information, I won't quote up tonight, but he uses the same quote again in chapter 12 and verse 7. Why does he say in the middle of this, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? Well, where's the quote come from in the Old Testament? It comes from a book, and I put my marker in the place because I knew I'd embarrass myself in front of you if I didn't. It comes from the book of Hosea and those minor prophets. I, although I know all the Bible books off by heart, I have to start from Genesis in order to get there and I didn't want to spend too much time trying to find it tonight so I've marked it. But it comes from Hosea chapter 6. Well what's going on in the context of Hosea chapter 6? Hosea, you'll probably know, is a minor prophet of the Old Testament. That doesn't mean lesser but it's a smaller prophecy and it's all about Israel's false optimism. And without getting into too much detail, in verses 1 and 2, let me read the first two verses of Hosea 6. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he, is, he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. And you'll notice what I just said, it's all about Israel's false optimism. What's the problem here with Hosea? Well, he's addressing the nation of Israel, who are full of words and full of rituals, but sadly they've got no love for God. They've messed up, they've deserted God, and they're actually saying, you know, 
in a couple of days we'll just come back to God and everything will be wonderful again and it's all empty words. It's all talk as we'd say today. And God responds in verse 4 of Hosea chapter 6, O Ephraim, he's, o Ephraim, he says, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud and like the early dew it goes away. In other words, your love, Israel, is non-existent. You've got all the talk, you do all the rituals, you sacrifice, but you haven't got any real love for me at all. And that's your problem. And so he says, quote, verse 6 of Hosea 6, the very quote that Jesus uses here. He says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Another um, wording for mercy is steadfast love. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. They're still bringing their sacrifices. They seem to be on the outside doing the right thing. But they haven't got any love for God. And so, Jesus reminds them of that. It's never so easy to get like that. It's never so easy to get churched without a great love for Christ. Tell me about it. It's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? Pastors as well. It's, you can run the church like the business. Uh, we can get into routines. Well, we'll show up for the meeting here and the meeting there. And, and you, Jesus says, what about your love? What about your steadfast love for me? You see, Jesus says to these Pharisees, you believe you're following God. You've got all these rituals, all these practices, all these morals, all these laws on top of the laws that you know from the Old Testament. But you haven't got any love for me. You don't really love me at all. And certainly they didn't recognize Jesus as God anyway. And so there's this challenge to them, and I believe to us tonight, doesn't it? You're not going to go to the doctor if you're well. Of course you're not. But actually you Pharisees are desperately ill. The same as the people I'm sitting around the table at. I want you to realize it's not your sacrifices, it's not your rituals, it's not your outward shows, it's not your pride and your legalistic judgmentalism, it's I want you to steadfastly love me. And then we get to the third part, which I'm sure many of us have heard many times before, where Jesus finishes up in verse 13 and says, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As I've said, anyway, there are no righteous ones. And, and Paul, under the Spirit of God in Romans, reminds us of that in chapter 3 and verse 10. But uh, he's come, Jesus has come to those tax collectors, and he's come to us tonight, to those who recognize that they're in need of forgiveness, to those who recognize that they are spiritually sick. You see, you can tell a person by the company they keep. And Jesus came, 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, to save sinners. Well, that's why he's sitting at the table with them, because they're just the people he wants to meet with. And you see, there's also not only a demand of our love tonight for Christ, to trust him, to recognize who he is, 
to know him as our saviour, to then seek to live a life of love devoted to him. And that, of course, bearing in mind what we've already thought about in the earlier part of the chapter, will spill over to our friends. And that's a good test as well in our Christian lives, I think, sometimes. You see, do we really care about anybody else? Do we ever, it won't always be successful, I know, tell me about it. But have we ever invited somebody along, even to the church? Well, why don't you come along on a Sunday? Because in our hearts, we've got a longing that they would come to know Christ as well. Just like the four friends got their paralyzed friend, just like Matthew, well, he got all those friends from the tax uh, office to come and sit and have a meal with him, and probably nobody else would ever have invited them, but he was one of them. But he realized what following Jesus meant. He had a burden for those people, and so he called them. Told you before, I always quote in Francis Dixon, but I love Francis Dixon, who used to be at Bournemouth Lansdowne Road, because there was a time down there during his 29-year ministry when he talked to the church, and he said, for the next six months on a Sunday evening, every Sunday evening, and if you've been to Lansdowne Road, there's a three-sided balcony, everything else is very well supported and so on, but he said, for the next six months, he said, I want you all to go out, and during the week, I want you to find a friend, somebody who's not a Christian, and invite them to come along next Sunday night at half past six, and I will make a promise to you, I will preach a simple gospel message about how Jesus can save people and change their lives. And loads of people came to know Christ during those six months. I'm sure Francis preached the gospel the rest of the time as well, but it was a particular emphasis, it was almost like a six-month mission because he's longing. And as a result, through the, the longing congregation, many of those church members and members of the congregation went out and did just that and brought people in, and many came to know Christ. See, it's ever so easy to come along and pay God lip service, isn't it? And we can do that during the week as well. But the challenge tonight is, I wonder if we really love Christ. You see, these Pharisees, I say, they had certain things which were commendable. But it was all about themselves, and it was filled with pride, and they didn't recognize Jesus, who he was. See, let me put it another way. If when you got home tonight, as I finish, if when you got home tonight, there was a very close friend or family member, perhaps a close friend, and they became desperately ill in your house, what's the first thing you do? Well, I know what I do. I know what you do. You get on the phone and you ring 999. You say, come on. Well, of course you would. The, the friend or the family member has, has fallen ill. They're in a coma and they're des in desperate need of help. And the first thing we do is to call the doctor or call the hospital to get medical attention as quickly as we could. Why? Because we love them. We want them to be well. We don't want them in that situation. I'll tell you something. A lot of our friends, maybe people here tonight, are spiritually sick and in desperate need of a doctor. And only Dr. Jesus is the answer. You see, our sin sickness is so bad that it caused Jesus to leave heaven and come and die on a cross and take our place. 
Over 240 titles in the Bible for Jesus. Do you know my favourite? One of my favourites. He's the friend of sinners. I'm glad about that tonight, aren't you? We used to sing, Jesus the sinner's friend. We hide ourselves in the... I remember that song years ago here. We haven't sung it for a long time now. But how true it is. Jesus is the sinner's friend. I'm ever so grateful tonight as I stand in this pulpit that years ago and <laughs> right up to now, people prayed for me, but they prayed for me before I was a Christian. And people invited me and people welcomed me. And through people, and through a work of the Spirit of God and the Word of God, of course, I came to know Christ as my Saviour for myself. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus? Wow. Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, so-called. I came to call sinners to repentance. There's a sign outside the church some years ago, and again, I've used it before. But I like looking when I go past church building. I always like to look at the signs outside. There's all those lovely ones, aren't there, you know? C-H-dash-dash-C-H. What is missing? You are. Love that one. Seven prayerless days makes one week. W-E-A-K. Like that one. The other one that stuck in my mind was this. You're not too bad to stay out and you're not too good to come in see because we all need Jesus without Christ we're spiritually sick but the great news is we've got a great position in Jesus who can change all that when we put our faith and trust in him and for those of us who are Christians tonight and we've started on that journey perhaps many years Jesus says beware you don't just get into the rituals. You'll become very legalistic and judgmental of other Christians. Instead, keep your focus on me. I want your steadfast love, most of all. Do you love me, says Jesus. Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Hope we'd be able to say the same thing ourselves tonight. Jesus is the sinner's friend. That's great news for 2016. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Just challenge our hearts. Lord, it's ever so easy to just get churchified and lose our focus on the one we're really worshipping. And Lord, you, you don't call for our sacrifices today. You call us to be living sacrifices. You call us to love you to live for you alone. That will affect not only us, but it will affect our view of those around us that don't know you. Will you challenge us afresh tonight? Tonight, when we go home from this place, we won't have some discussion about what the hymn choices were, or how long the message was. But most of all, we'll get right with you and seek to love you day by day and not only know your blessing in our lives but be a means of blessing to those round about us.
Underline your truth to our hearts, we pray, because we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.